The Daily Sales Show, hosted by Sell Better. Welcome back, everybody, to the Sell Better Daily Sales Show, where we bring you daily sales advice to help you sell better. I'm your host, Adrian Saya, and today we're going to be speaking on the top follow-up sequences to keep your prospect engaged. I know it's all a struggle. You're looking at that sequence. You're building it out in your sales engagement tool, and you're like, man, what is the perfect model? Well, we're going to get into that and so much more. But before we do, I'd love to know, where are you guys tuning in from? Throw it in the chat. I'd love to see these. We're usually worldwide. Great to see everyone here. Let me know where you are tuning in from. And be sure to switch your chat to everyone. So do me a favor, click that blue button in your chat and switch it to everyone so we can see where you guys are tuning in from. I'm seeing a lot of people already lighting up the chat. Thank you guys for tuning in. I'm seeing Aaron here from Colorado, Laura from San Antonio, and Austin from Boston. Welcome, guys. It's great to have you here. And let's get right into it. Now, today we have my guest, very special guest. We have Jason Bay here. He's a founder and CEO of Outbound Squad. Now, Jason, what do you think most reps are missing in their follow-up sequence? Good to have. Uh, thank you for having me. It's good to be here, dude. Um, I think in terms of when we think about sequences, there's a couple different parts that we're going to talk about. There's kind of the, you know, what do we say while we're reaching out to someone? How often do we reach out? Where do we reach out? And I would say the the biggest thing is that people tend to be very singular in the channels that they choose. Mm. And most people tend to lean on more passive channels. So email and LinkedIn, and they tend to pick up the phone less. And I think a lot of it right now is a game of, you know, how do we, through a multi-channel, you know, contact strategy, put the right messaging in front of people, but do it in a lot of different ways because we don't know what the prospect's preferred method of communication is. I don't know about you. I happen to be a, an email is my preference if I'm getting prospecting outreach. I know it's ironic. I teach cold calling and I don't pick up cold calls, <laughs> uh, but a lot of our buyers are not like that. So I think that the multi-channel being willing to go through all of the channels and make that time productive, that's the that's the biggest challenge that I see is, you know, how do I take this message and apply it across a bunch of different mediums without too much brain power? So true. Well, I'm excited to get right into it because we're going to divulge all the secrets into that. <laughs> now, of course, we wouldn't be able to do this without our partners. So big shout out to Owler and Vidyard. And of course, we have our drop of the day. We're going to be giving you guys an Owler sales trigger document. Be sure to check it out. I'm going to drop the link in the chat. You're going to be able to see all the sales triggers that you can identify to know that your prospect is ready to buy. So be sure to download that. It's free and check it out. And of course, before we start, if you're looking to level up in 2023, we are here to help with our Sell Better Daily Sales Show and our membership and instant access training and with resources. This membership is designed for individuals and full teams. So be sure to check it out. You can scan this QR code or visit us at sellbetter.xyz. So what are we going to be covering today? But before I get into that, I want to know who is in the room. Do we have SDRs? Do we have AEs? Maybe frontline managers or senior leadership? Let me know because this helps tailor the conversation. SDRs, I'm asking SDR questions. AEs, more AE questions. So be sure to fill this out for me, guys, so we can get into it correctly. 
Now, we're going to be covering the right messaging that you want to create so that way you're coming across as persistent but not annoying. It's a delicate balance. And a good sequence structure that can set you guys up for success. And lastly, if your prospect says they're going to do something, how can you make sure they actually follow through? We're going to get into that and so much more. And I want to know from our audience, just, just, a, just a friendly guess here. Out of all the cold calls you've done, what do you guys think is the successful percentage for talking to listening? Throw it in the chat. Let me know. Do you think it's 15% talking? 85% talking? Am I talking a lot just to get it going? Or should it be somewhere in the middle? Jason, what do you think? Well, I already know the answer. <laughs> so, I won't spoil it. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm already seeing a lot of these. 10% talking. People are saying they should just be talking 20%, 80% with the prospect. So let's see here. It looks like the answer is successful cold calls are actually 55% talking and 45% listening. Jason, does this surprise you, the statistic? Is this what you've seen from your experience? Well, I mean, when I first came across this statistic, it surprised me for sure. Yeah, was a, that was a year or two ago. Uh, you know, we're always taught in sales. You know, I'm just based on the answers that I'm seeing in the chat. You have two ears and one mouth. Use them proportionately, right? You should be listening mostly and asking powerful questions that get the prospect talking. And anyone that's made cold calls knows that the reality of a cold call is that it, it never works like that. It never works like, oh, I get a prospect on. They're super engaged and happy to talk to me and all of this other kind of stuff that rarely happens. So the takeaway here is that it's not about talking less than the prospect. It is about talking about yourself less. So the content of the conversation is more important than how much of a percentage you spend talking versus the prospect. The mistake that most people make on a cold call is in the first 60 seconds, they spend all of that time talking about themselves in their company. And then they ask for a meeting at the end of that. That's the mistake that people make. They talk too much about themselves. I see. Now, I can also tell that we have a lot of AEs in the room, about 40% and 33% SDRs. For those AEs who are running demo calls, do you think they need to be doing most of the talking as well, similar to this cold call okay. statistic? Yeah, I saw Manuel uh, comment in the chat, a disco call would be lower on the side for talking versus listening. And you know what? It depends on where you look. Challenger just came out with a bunch of data in their newest book. Uh, I think it's Jolt mm -hmm. that uh, elite sales reps talk more in their sales conversations than the prospect too. And the reason for that, a sales call, the context is very, very different, but their, their justification, what they think based on the data that they saw is if I'm talking to a consultative seller, someone that's been in the game for a while, I'm seeking their advice. What do they see in other companies, right? That's the type of stuff that I'm asking for. And that's what's driving the conversation. So I think that talk time is a, for the most part, vanity metric. Mm -hmm. It's going to help you expose extremes. Obviously, if you're talking 80% of the time, it doesn't matter how good you are or what you're, what you're doing. That's probably too much. And at the same time, if you're only talking 20% of the time, that, that's a huge red flag for me too. I'm like, does a prospect just hop on a call or when you connect with them on a cold call, they just run the entire conversation? That's not adding value. <laughs> That's being an order taker. 
You know, so if we want to be a trusted advisor and a consultative sell, uh, salesperson, don't focus so much on like talking less than the prospect, the content of the conversation. And in the case of today, where the content of your sequences and of your outreach is much more important than talk time. So when it got about with other avenues, right? Let's say email or LinkedIn, what kind of messaging should you be incorporating in that so that you show you're asking those deep level yeah. questions and not just surface level things that once honestly people ignore. Yeah. So you want to use what's called self-disclosure principle. So self-disclosure prin uh, principle is very simple. Uh, the best way I could describe it to you, Adrian, and for the rest of you is my therapist, Sam, I feel very close to him, right? I've been seeing him. I was just looking back through the notes that I take at our sessions about a year now. And you know, what's really funny about our, my relationship with Sam is that I don't really know much about him. <laughs> you know, I see that he's got red hair, he wears glasses, and he says he's got a couple kids and uh, a partner, and they just moved to Wisconsin. And you know, besides that, I don't really know much about him. Yet I feel very close to him because I have shared so much of my life with him. Mm. So how does that apply to sales? The way that applies to sales is when prospects talk about themselves, and if you can talk about them and get them talking about what they care about, they feel more rapport and more of a relationship with you. And sometimes we feel this pressure on a cold call, let's say, or in an email. Well, hey, don't we got to let the prospect know what we do? We only get this one shot, right? This one email or this one, one call, which anyone that's been in the game for a little while knows that you get more than one shot, <laughs> right? And we feel this pressure. We, they need to know what we do and how we can help. But the best way to get their attention is to actually talk about them first. And there's a couple things that you want to do, a couple patterns that, and we're going to show some examples of what this looks like here in a second. But what I want to do is talk about their priorities, current solutions, problems, and aspirations. That's like the magic quadrant right there. So priorities is for people like them, for me, let's say VP of sales, I've worked with enough VPs of sales in tech that I genuinely know what they're going to be focused on because it's sort of similar across all VPs of sales in tech when the company's of a certain size. And right now, the biggest priority is self-sourcing pipeline. How do we get account executives to self-source more pipeline? Because, you know, we need more than 3x pipeline coverage. Now we need like 4 to 5x coverage to hit our number. I know that that's going to be a priority. And if it's not, it's, it's probably not worth my time to spend talking with this person still. So the priorities are, what are the top level things that if there were a whiteboard uh, on my fake brick wall back here, if there were a whiteboard and I'm one of your prospects, what would be on that whiteboard for my focuses this quarter or this year? Two is current solutions. Current solutions is how am I getting the job done right now? So sometimes I run into situations where sellers refuse to believe that a prospect is like living their life and getting along okay without their solution. <laughs> and uh, in 99.9% .9 of cases, your prospect is getting by with something and it's probably doing a decent job. So I want to know what those things are. So if it's self-sourcing pipeline, um, you can kind of think about current solutions as people, process, and technology. Those are kind of the three ways that people tend to uh, make progress on goals or look to fix problems. It's like hiring more people. Uh, in this case, it could be uh, bringing in a sales engagement tool for my uh, AEs, the technology part. In the process, that's like a training thing. 
right? What's the process in which we're doing this? So I want to be able to speak to those things. And then I want to speak to problems. So problems are the things that are getting in the way of those priorities. And typically problems are associated with those current solutions. And then aspirations, what do we want to do? So those are the four problems, current solutions, um, or sorry, priorities, problems, current solutions, and then aspirations. And if you can map out a messaging matrix, which we'll show you here in a second, for your prospects and their most common priorities, if I come into a conversation or start a sequence with that, I'm showing the prospect that I know their world, I'm buying, I'm earning an opportunity to do discovery, if it's in a sales call, to get a response to a cold email, to get another 30 to 60, 90 seconds in a cold call, whatever it might be. So self-disclosure principle, the best way to start a conversation and get a reply in your sequence or get a response in your cold call is to talk about them and things that people like them care about and get them talking about that. Force the prospect to ask you what you do. I like that. Now, you mentioned the example. We do have a matrix here for the audience to see. Can you break this down for me? What are we exactly looking at? Okay, so what we're looking at here, so this is a client that I used to work with that sells uh, what's called an EDC, electronic document capture. Mm -hmm. So electronic document capture essentially is if, uh, you know, if I'm selling a medical device, uh, I'm going to do what's called clinical trials to prove that this medical device actually delivers on the outcomes that we say it does. Because if we can prove through a study that it works, it's going to sell like hotcakes. Yep. So there's people at these companies in clinical operations roles where that's literally, literally their job. And those are the people that they want to get in touch with because that's what their software helps with. So what you see on the left there are the priorities. At any given time, if we reach out to someone in clinical operations, we know that they're either working on starting up a trial so startup timelines, timelines, or they're currently focused, like they're mid-trial and they're trying to wrap it up. And the biggest part to them that's uh, a really big focus is how do we, you know, make sure the patient journey is nailed down and how do we retain patients through the study because it's really costly to replace them. So we know that at any given time, those are the two big things that they're working on. Mm. In terms of current solutions, we know that they might be doing this manually on spreadsheets or paper solutions. They might be using a database. They might be using a competing product or they might be outsourcing through what's called a CRO. And then what we did is we mapped out all the problems associated with each of those current solutions. So when we go to write an email, we might say something like, hey, we noticed that you just started a clinical trial. You know, a lot of times and name out the trial specifically, and then we're going to mention the priority. Usually what that means is you're focused on patient journey and retention. And if you're using something like a manual paper solution or MS Access or Excel, it can create a lot of manual work for your team. One of the ways we're helping XYZ companies is to start their studies ahead of schedule so they can get their product to market faster. Just something you'd be interested in chatting. That's like your cold email right there in four lines. Wow. I love this. Now, do you recommend that anyone watching do this for all of their accounts, their top accounts? When should you actually implement this matrix? So this is something that you don't build for accounts, you build for personas. I see. So what I would suggest is where people tend to get stuck when they build this is that, okay, I have a client, they sell into customer support roles, they sell into digital experience roles, sometimes marketing roles, sometimes a sales role. 
That's four messaging matrices. Don't start this exercise by building all four of those. Pick one that represents, like if I had to pick a persona that if I'm going to, if, you know, let's say that this is a game of poker and I had to stack the odds in my favor. If I had to put all of my chips onto one of the personas that I typically tend to sell to as, hey, this is the highest likelihood of success if the sales uh, cycle starts with this persona, I'm going to pick that one. And then I'm going to build this messaging matrix for that. And what this is going to do is basically, if I if I segment this properly across the persona, I could say, hey, people in this role, based on all the experience I have in landing meetings, running sales calls, all of my sales team's experience, they tend to be focused in on like one or two areas. Here's how they tend to get the job done. Here are the problems they run into. And here's really what they want from an aspirational standpoint. And I'm telling you, if you if you do that exercise, this is your cold calling talk trap, your cold email uh, messaging. This is your LinkedIn messaging. This is like the talking points in a discovery call, right? So aspirations, Kinsley, the desired feature state in six plus months. So what do I want? Hmm. It's the opposite of the problem, right? The problem is the thing I need to fix. The aspiration is like the opposite. So a lot of times right now, if you follow LinkedIn content, sales content on LinkedIn, you know, like mine or the dozens of other folks like Adrian that, that that post content, oh, focus on loss aversion, focus on what they have to lose. And you know what? That works on a lot of people. It doesn't work on everyone. Most executives are pretty aspirational in nature and they're thinking six, 12 months from now, what they want to accomplish. They aren't thinking about all the problems they have today. So you want to do both. So hopefully that answers your ca- uh, question, Kinsley, and for anyone else, the aspiration is like, what do I want? I love this. I like how simplified it is where you can literally just break it down into different buckets, essentially, to create a a really strong piece of messaging that can resonate with your prospect. Everyone, be sure to screenshot this and put a one in the chat if you find yourself going to be using this in the future for your future messaging. Because I know I've been there. I'm like, man, what do I tell these people <laughs> now that I'm following up? I'm already seeing tons of ones. Love to see this. Uh, be sure to use this, guys. This is fantastic. Now, Jason, I know you also mentioned that you want to keep it simple as well in some aspects. And we have this framework that we like to call KISS. Can you tell me more about this? What exactly is KISS? Yeah, so... Today's conversation was all about sequences and like, how do we follow up and all that kind of stuff. So KISS, I came up with this because I was like, you know what? Most reps that I work with in sales teams want to know the magic formula for how many times they should reach out to a prospect and over what time and all this other stuff. And and they spend all of this time trying to find the perfect equation for something when there is no perfect equation. Mm. And they try to, they overcomplicate stuff. I'll see sequences, Adrian, that are like email day one, call day two, uh, email day three, call if they open the email, uh, drop LinkedIn message. If they haven't connected, do this. I'm like, that seems so complicated to follow. Mm -hmm. And I want to do something that's very simple. And I also want to do something that is supported by what the data tells us that we should do. So Sales Loft, Outreach, uh, Apollo, Vanilla Soft, all of the sales engagement platforms, all of their data shows generically the same thing. Okay. It's all multi-channel. So uh, InsideSales.com did a really interesting study. And what they found is that when you combine three or more channels, 
it's like four times the contact rate of one or two. Wow. So you're going to get in contact more just by putting your message out there in multiple channels. Um, multi-day. So we have to reach out over a period of time. We can't just do 15 touches in one day. That's like going to the gym once a month and saying, hey, I'm just going to do all, I'm going to do eight hours of workouts in a month. Because uh, that'll, that, you know, I'll combine it down into one day. Like it doesn't work like that, right? So like sequences don't work like that either. We get to do all of the outreach in one day. We got to spread it out. The sort of recipe there is over three or four weeks. So I got three channels over three to four weeks. And then what I want to do is the number of touches is somewhere between 12 and 15. And what that typically amounts to is a couple phone calls a week, couple emails, and then one social touch. So if you're touching the prospect, it didn't sound right. If you're reaching out <laughs> to the prospect five times a week, you're doing pretty good. And we'll talk about how to kind of spread those out, but that's generally the approach that you want to start with and you can tweak and adjust from there. Most of the time when I see people over-optimize sequences and like the cadence and the number of touches and shuffling stuff around, they don't get nearly as much juice out of that as by working on the messaging, the part that we just talked about prior to this. All right. So good messaging is at the foundation of a solid sequence. So just keep that in mind. An outstanding message will make up for most things in a sequence, but that's kind of generally the rules of thumb that we want to follow. Fantastic. So just recap quickly what Jason said. I'm going to go ahead and put that slide back on the screen. I see Tanya and a bunch of people are asking, please let me know what this KISS model is. I want to see it. You want to make sure that your sequences are multi-day, multi-touch, and multi-channel. Seems simple, but it's all about how you implement it, right? KISS stands for Keep It Simple Sequencing. You don't want to overcomplicate this. You don't need to put if and it's not Boolean logic. We just want to make sure that it's just a simple, straightforward process that we can out with. Now, this brings me to my question for my audience here. How many times do you guys reach out to your prospect before stopping? Are you reaching out one to four times, five to nine, 10 to 15 times, or 15 plus times before you're like, you know, I think it's time to call it quits on this one. Let me take a step back. <laughs> We'd love to know. I would love for you to be honest, Steve. So it would be great if you could throw it in there. If the answer is not there, throw it in the chat. We'd love to see some of these uh, because it is very important to get a feel for what our audience thinks on how many times is the right sweet spot. So Jason, I'm seeing Rob actually here in the, in the chat says, until they say stop, do you think that's the right way to go about it? Uh, I mean, I can't see Rob, so I don't know if he's joking or not or being facetious, <laughs> but uh, I, I think uh, it depends on like what you're selling and how many, like the universe of accounts that you have access to at any given time. So if you're like a strategic rep that sells to two or three accounts at a time, like, yeah, you're going to go heavy on fewer prospects. Most of us on the call are probably not doing that type of outreach. So especially for you account executives on like outbound is mostly a game of time management. So I need to figure out, you know, diminishing returns. At what point am I going to get diminishing returns? And seven calls after that, the contact rate goes down substantially according to insidesales.com. And it's in my experience too, the same kind of thing. So I'm going to call someone six times. If I continue emailing them more than six times, the odds that they unsubscribe and never allow me to email them again are very high and the results are very low. So why continue to do it? There are a certain percentage of people that 
you know, outbound is a game of like failure, really, when you think about it. If 90, uh, if 10%, excuse me, of your prospects said yes to a meeting that you reach out to, I think everyone on this call would be super happy about that. That means that you fail 90% of the time. And of that 90% of the time, you probably don't even hear from over half of those people. It's crazy. It is. So don't waste time reaching out to people that are showing zero signs of life or um, desire to want to interact with you. So you need to know when to stop. That's that's also an exercise that's really important too. I'm curious what this poll says though. So it looks like most people stop after five to nine times reaching out. You know, so I could see that being a sweet spot. Um, could be email, call five to nine times. A lot of times I've been told by my sales leaders, just keep going until it says stop, until the person literally tells you, hey, look, I don't want to be contacted anymore. An even better piece of advice I got is if the messaging is not working for you, hand off the prospect to another person on your team. That way they probably have different style of messaging, different style of reaching out it could actually end up working for your entire team in that sense if you just hand it off. So I know you mentioned that there's a great structure here for the KISS model. Do you mind breaking this down very quickly? Yep. So um, that matri a messaging matrix that we just showed, basically what you're going to do in that messaging matrix, we had two priorities on ours. Oftentimes you'll have three main priorities. You want to take one of those priorities and that becomes the focal point of your messaging for that week. So if starting clinical trials, if that's the priority that we're going to focus on, that's the one that's going to, what you're going to see reflected here over this courses, uh, over this course of the week. So you're basically going to take this in two batches. There's a principle here. Tony Hughes calls it combo prospecting in his book, which I highly recommend you, you check out if you're into that kind of thing. If you like reading books, uh, the TLDR of that is that you basically want to stack together different channels of outreach and do them simultaneously and the contact rate goes up when you do that. So day one, I'm going to call the prospect, I'm going to email them, and then I'm going to reach out to them on LinkedIn. What you can do with your sales engagement platform that's kind of cool, let's say it's Monday, I can queue up emails to go out Tuesday morning from eight to nine o'clock over my cold call block. So I'm hitting them with emails and I'm calling them at the same time I'm not having to hit send on the email. So call, voicemail, email, LinkedIn. I'll give you another little hack too. Point the voicemail to the email. So Orem had some really great data around this. What they showed is that the subsequent contact rate, so the second time that you call a prospect, you have a 25.8% higher likelihood of getting a pickup if you left a voicemail on the first call. Mm -hmm. So voicemails, don't ask for a call back. You're just gonna say, hey, uh, at the end of your voicemail, Adrian, I just sent you an email and the subject line is uh, AE self-sourcing. Go ahead and check it out. I left some tips in there on what we're seeing some other organizations do. Let me know if this is something that's a focus of yours right now. I like how you're pointing things back to other avenues of communication. It just improves yeah. the chances they'll see it like tenfold. It's fantastic yeah. to see. Now, how do you reps go about AB testing this? Because I'm sure it changes from time to time. What advice would you give them? Yeah, I think that the A-B testing is, there's a couple parts to it. I'll, I'll make this really simple because it's the only way that I know how to do it. So uh, <laughs> principle number one of A-B testing is don't test too many things at the same time. So a true A-B test, you're testing one variable. So if you're testing your sequence and you're testing email copy, 
maybe just A-B test the call to action between the different emails or the subject line of the emails. So look at like what outcome are you trying to improve? Mm. So if I'm trying to improve open rates, I'm going to A-B test my subject lines in the first line of my email. If I'm trying to improve reply rates, let's just try tweaking the call to action and making a different ask at the end of the email. Let's try that first. So keep it really simple. Test one thing at a time. The second thing is that you need a good enough sample size. This is where I see people, they'll send five emails out and not get a positive outcome. They start changing things. Really, the magic number is around 100. Just statistical, um, anyone that's into like kind of stats, like you'll be plus or minus 10% uh, positive uh, or accuracy of the outcome. If you do around 95 to 100 data points, that might be too much for you to do. Maybe it's 50 is a pretty good start. But bottom line is that you need to try it a fair amount of times before you change it in order to know what is actually going to work or not. So those are kind of the big things with an A-B test. Let's, let's pick something very simple to tweak and let's make sure that we are putting enough data points into this experiment to know that it's not just luck, either good or bad, that is producing this outcome. I'm really happy you mentioned that because a lot of times, you know, I've, I've been guilty of it. I send something out, I realize it doesn't work and I immediately think, okay, end of the world. I'm not trying that again. You got to give things time. You got to be able to use it. Like you mentioned, Jason, at least a hundred times to tell if this is really clicking with my audience, you need a large sample size. It's just a statistic. So be sure to use, utilize that to the fullest extent before you go switching things up to see what actually works. Now, how about getting your prospect to actually agree with what they said? I know we spoke about this on the pre-call. We want to have a good buyer's journey. Can you break this down for me a bit? Oh, yeah. So we're shifting gears now and talking about the sales part of the conversation. So... One of the things that uh, I think a lot of people struggle with during the sales process is being persistent through the sales process without being pesky. So the number one way to follow up with people, either when they ghost or just to hold them accountable, so to speak, to the stuff that they're supposed to be doing is to present it in their best interest. So the very first thing that you have to do is think less about your sales process and completely flip that around and think about the buying process. So what you're looking at here on the screen, this is the buying process that companies tend to go through. It's not perfectly linear like this, but this is the process a company tends to go through when they buy things. So the first stage is awareness, and that's awareness of a problem. Someone at that company, usually an individual or a small community, becomes aware of a problem. Oh, our AEs are not self-sourcing pipeline. We need to go find a way to fix this. So the consideration is, is this problem important to an individual? Uh, is it important to a group of people? Because groups of people make decisions. And of all of the problems that we have, is this one that should go at the top of the list? And then the evaluation stage is when we can start looking for solutions and evaluating vendors and decision. We can you know, make a decision and all that kind of stuff. So how does this apply to following up and being persistent through the sales process? What you want to make sure to do, your job, your number one job as an account executive is to figure out is there a problem? Do multiple people at that company agree that it's a problem? And is there consensus on the priority of this problem? Is this problem important to us? That's the number one thing that you need to figure out first. And then the way that you present everything, so multi-threading, for example, 
and looping in other stakeholders is instead of talking about everything that needs to happen in order to buy this, let's frame the conversation around what it takes to successfully implement this and also do what happens after that, get the outcome that they want. So through my training with AE self-sourcing, that would be getting our AEs to self-source more pipeline. So if I can make all of my follow-up around how we help companies like Gong or Medallia or Zoom or whoever our other clients, how they are successfully self-sourcing pipeline with their account executives, follow-up becomes very easy because I'm aligning it to the goals of the prospect. I'm aligning my follow-up to the outcomes that they care about versus buying my solution. Because the the journey just starts when one of your customers buys, buys your solution. That's when the hard work starts for them. I know it's over for you as an account executive. And for me, I happen to deliver the services that I sell too. So I see that other side of it. Like the hard work is just beginning when they purchase your solution. They purchase your solution to get the outcomes that you said it would get. So focus on those. I love that. Um, really help putting yourself in your prospect shoes that they still have a lot of the journey left to complete and you, it's just ending. So you got to kind of lead with that understanding uh, for what, what benefits they can see and make that next portion of their journey a lot easier on them because it's just starting. Now, you also mentioned something there, Jason, that there's a lot of times more people in the buyer cycle than you'd expect. It's not just the one person you're reaching out to. In fact, we have a great quote here from McKinsey and Company, and about 70% of organizational change programs fail to meet their objectives. Why do you think this is? Do you think it has to do with roping in other people into the conversation? Why do you think it's happening? Yeah, It happens for a lot of different reasons, but essentially what this means is that think about the software you sell on this call. Think about what happens if you sell that software to a customer and it doesn't deliver the, on the outcomes that you said it would. Are you going to get fired? Probably not because you just sold it. As a buyer, if I buy something that's multiple six or seven figures and it doesn't deliver on the outcomes that I said it would, if I don't get fired, my political capital inside that company is just like ruined. People are not going to trust me anymore. So in other words, buying is inherently more risky than selling. So organizational change. So when what this is basically saying is that 70% of the time someone brings in a new software, like a sales engagement tool, let's say, it doesn't end up delivering an ROI for them. Wow. So why do you need to know that? Why you need to know that is that buyers, their number one thing that they're thinking about, and you, if you can change your language around like the sales process that you have is to de-risk the purchase is to make the purchase a more successful purchase. And the way that you do that is by looping in other stakeholders and getting other people involved because the more of the executive team and the more of the people using your product that are on board with that product before it's even purchased, the higher the likelihood of a successful implementation and the less risky it is for a buyer. So just keep this in mind. When you're following up, don't make it about buying your solution again. Make it about how they can get good outcomes and have a successful implementation. That's the reason why I'm following up. It's because you said these goals were important to you. And when I, the expertise I bring to the table as a sales professional is how other companies like yours get really good outcomes with our solution. That's what I'm an expert in. And I need to align those two things. And you won't be pesky at all when you do that. People will really appreciate the follow-up because it's not about buying your solution. And again, it's about what do they want to accomplish? 
What problems do they have and how can we make sure that they're able to get those outcomes or that I'm sharing how other similar companies are getting those outcomes? I That is incredibly well said. And this statistic is very shocking to me that 70% of tools that are bought, you know, they don't see an ROI in is very powerful. It really, really reshifts the thinking um, on how you need to rope in more people. And I actually want to hear from our audience. Are you guys normally single threaded on your deals? Let us know. If you are, you are. If you feel like you need to be more multi-threaded, let us know in the chat. But are you really, in most of your deals, you just got one point of contact? What is that? 25%, 50%, maybe 70 plus? Let me know. Jason, is it surprising though? If someone is, you know, because I'm already seeing that at least 10% of the people in our audience, that there are 70% of their deals that are single-threaded, what can they ask? So that way they can actually have more people in the conversation with them. Yeah. So Denise sort of asked this question in the chat as well. So there's three parts. Like we, we could have done a whole 45 minute session just on multi-threading today. That's how complex <laughs> it can get. So there's three parts. One is who I need to know before I even hop on that first sales call with the company based on how other people like them buy our solution and successfully implement it. Who are the stakeholders that are typically involved? For me, that's going to be an executive sales leader, people that are uh, sales managers that are going to be working with the reps, implementing the content, and then people that run up uh, head up sales enablement. If I get those three parties involved, it's going to be pretty good, successful implementation of our training. So I need to know who. That's part number one. Two is I need a good way of asking and explaining the value, which I just did, right? How do I explain the value to the prospect of looping at other people? And I make it about successful implementations versus about how to buy our stuff. And then third is I need some plays. A typical play you might run is if someone comes inbound and they're on an IC or manager level, what I might do before that first call is reach out to their VP and say, hey, just letting you know, I'm having a conversation with some folks on your team about sales training and how to help your AE self-source more pipeline. No ask of you here. I'll keep in the loop as the conversation progresses. So I'm already opening up lines of communication before the first call. That's an example of a play, but I need to know who should be involved. I need to know how to explain the value for the buyer. It's about implementation, not buying stuff. And I need some plays and things like that, that I can run that are very simple. Fantastic. Now, when you do rope everyone in and you send your meeting um, invite across, I know you had an example here for us. Yeah. Can you break this down? What does this look like? This was a game changer for me. Okay. So someone commented on my LinkedIn post earlier. It was maybe yesterday, I think is when I put this up. And what they said was basically something along the lines of, as an executive is scrolling through their calendar, this looks like a meeting that would be really hard to cancel. And the reason why it's really hard for them to cancel or not show up to is that the calendar invite, the, the name of the, like the title of the calendar event is their priority. It's not introduction to outbound squad. It's not uh, scope training with outbound squad. It's no, it's the name of their initiative. Like their initiative is AE self sourcing 30% of pipeline. That is the internal language that they're using right now and the exact thing that they want to accomplish. So, title of calendar invite, especially when this, you know, this call it seven other people on it. So, title of the calendar invite's got to be something they care about. Okay. And then you could put your company's information after that. Second thing, you'll notice that in the actual 
um, body of the calendar invite, I put stuff from the conversations I've had with their team so far. And by the way, this, this call had a VP of sales, a director of sales, two people from sales enablement and the three sales managers, I think was what it, what it was. I put their key priority in what I know about that priority and the problems into the calendar invite. So this VP and director of sales, who I happen to meet these two for the first time, they don't need to go hunting around an email or anything like that to figure out what we're talking about. Like we're talking about you, dude. Like we're talking about your priority that I learned from your team that is the number one focus for you guys right now. So those two things are really, really important. And now when I go to follow up, which honestly, this call, that's what happened is I'm kind of in a stage right now where it's like, they understand it's a problem priority. And it's just like, and this is a second deal for, for me, it's an existing client, but budget's a really big concern for them right now. Mm -hmm. So now when I go to follow up, it's all about how are we helping AE self-source 30% pipeline? Cause we know that we're going to miss our sales targets unless they're hitting that. I really like this outbound accelerator training program, right? It's completely flipped on its head. This is fantastic. And I think really ropes more people into the conversation. Uh, I'm already seeing here that about 25 to 50% uh, our audience is single threaded in deals. Do you find that when you send this calendar meeting across, it also makes it easier for internally that team to share it with those execs who need to be involved? Yeah, absolutely. Because you think about the logistics, like the way that I was, I got this meeting is I was working through a sales enablement manager. Mm -hmm. So not someone that like has a meeting every week with the VP of sales. Yeah, they, they know each other, but it becomes really easy to invite this person. Like they see the meeting invite and it's not like demo of training program. It's, oh, wow, it's, it's our initiatives and problems that we're having that I didn't quite know, actually. Like that's what we're going to be talking about. Fantastic. So you need to make your, your meetings hard to cancel. Make sure to write that down, guys. <laughs> you make your meeting hard to, to cancel or, or, or not show up to when it's about the most important thing that your prospect cares about. So I did great discovery prior to this. You know, this is with second call. But dude, you got to get the stuff that, I, that, that you see here on the screen. This is how you prevent yourself from getting ghosted or for people no showing and that kind of thing. Phenomenal. Everyone, be sure to screenshot this. I agree with you, Arthur. This is a juicy webinar, juicy show. So we're going to make sure to give you that so much more in our upcoming ones as well. Now, let's get into some quick Q&A. But before we do, do, Jason, can you tell us where to find you? Where can the people find you if they want to reach out to you? Uh, connect with me on LinkedIn. I just dropped in my, uh, my URL and then we have a website outboundsquad.com, but I post content every day about sales and about prospecting on the LinkedIn. That's kind of the hub for everything. And then outboundsquad.com is where you can find, like we got a podcast, uh, we have training programs, coaching programs. There's tons of free resources on there. Make sure to check us out in both those two areas. Our specialty is helping BDRs become account executives and helping account executives make their first, you know, couple hundred thousand bucks and beyond um, in the role. Fantastic. Now, Nathan here in the chat asks, I definitely stop around 10 pieces of outreach, but I also run out of creative ways to keep the persistence going without being boring or sound like I'm begging. What advice could you give Nathan on keeping the creativity flowing so that he can have more consistent outreach? Yeah. So if you're following the keep it simple sequencing structure, it goes three weeks. Each week is a different topic around a priority of the prospect. So 
I'm going to have an email around that topic. And then I just bump the email with some variation of any thoughts or, or whatever that you want to use there. And then the week after it's priority number two, and then some sort of bump email, you can bump with content. People, I know people are weird about this. They're like, oh, you got to always be sharing value. And I'm like, nah, that's not necessarily the case. Like you can share too much good stuff with a prospect. You know, if I got eight emails and all of them had a link to a really good article or podcast, I'm like, this is too much, dude. Mm -hmm. I can't consume this content. So share one or two really good things and then don't be afraid to just leverage a bump email, pointing people back to it. Fantastic. Now, this brings us to the end of our show. Just so we can do a quick recap here, be sure to keep it stupid simple. Keep the sequencing simple. Use the KISS method, right? Just keep it simple, guys. Make sure to rope people in. This is the second point. You want to be able to multi-thread and get everyone to implement it. And lastly, don't be afraid to use a matrix like we did in the beginning. So that way you can structure your, your messaging correctly. And this has been a phenomenal conversation, Jason. Thank you so much for joining us. And thank you to everyone out there in our audience. You guys have been blowing up this chat. Love to see it. And we, of course, will catch you on the next one. See you later. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, Adrian. See ya. <laughs> later.